So imagine that, that if I have a list of usernames and passwords, I am 80% likely to password spray your admins. So if I go to Troy and find your admins' email addresses on their LinkedIn profiles and password spray them with typing those passwords in to portaloffice.com, I am 80% likely to just hit. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. When you see the endless parade of discovered software vulnerabilities and patches parade across your newsfeed, have you ever wondered why there are so many? Well, here's an interesting insight. A survey released at the beginning of April by Secure Code Warrior found that just 14% of developers surveyed listed application security as a top priority. The research found that security had such a low priority that fully two-thirds of developers admitted that they routinely left known vulnerabilities and exploits in their code. To talk about this today with me is Daniel Stefaniak, Senior Product Manager for Identity and Access Management for Domino Data Lab. Daniel has a deep understanding of IAM. Before Domino, he spent 10 years with Microsoft, first as a premier field engineer for Active Directory, then moving to a program management position on the identity product team. As Azure AD was undergoing a rapid development and extension of its capabilities. I know because I was covering Microsoft at that time for Windows IT Pro, there was a time when it seemed that Microsoft was announcing a new Azure AD feature practically every week. Many people in the AD field know Daniel from this time when he was a popular presenter at MVP summits and at Ignite. He gave us MVP folks a lecture on how OAuth 2 and OIDC work in Azure AD using the analogy of leasing an apartment. And I can tell you it was on March 19th 2019, Daniel, because I still have the notes on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why do you think security has such a low priority in application design, e even as we, and certainly the developers, see this parade of vulnerabilities? Uh, so it's probably the same reason why it's still not a high priority to, for you to floss uh, your teeth. No, <laughs> flossing my teeth, okay. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's uh, something that everyone knows they should be doing, but it's uh, not flashy. If you, do, if you do it, the effect is not seen, right? Uh, so when you have something that you have to deliver, the quote-unquote value is, needs to be seen and appreciated by either your boss, your boss's boss, your client, your salespeople, and you can always hope for the best that the vulnerability doesn't realize itself because at the end of the day, it's always risk management. It's just hoping for the best uh, and hedging your bets uh, at the end of the day. And it's kind of one of my friends and mentors, uh, Mr. Matthias Hoekstra, used to tell me that identity and security for developers is kind of like eating spinach. 
you know you should be doing it, but it kind of goes down not that easily. At the end of the day, I think the problem is a little bit more systematic. We don't incentivize people to have a good security posture. It's basically doing when those folks uh, have to patch a vulnerability. If they do, they don't feel appreciated most of the time. Or they just treat it as, okay, okay, I've lost, but it doesn't make me feel good or it doesn't make other people feel good around me. Right. It's more of a systematic thing more than, because I hate the thing when people say, oh, developers just don't want to do it. You will be doing things if you are incentivized to do them at the end of the day. So what you're saying is program management is pushing for the new features and capabilities that help sell product not for software vulnerabilities. Yes, at the end of the day, absolutely. Also kind of like building a house. Foundation versus nice uh, siding on a house. Nice siding on a house is the thing that will uh, ramp up the price. If the inspection says it's okay enough, it will kind of work. At the end of the day, there is we know there is a huge shortage of software engineers, programmers, developers, and uh, all the in-between and uh, full stack, non-stack, front and back end. And when you have earn list of 27 items for 22 man years, uh, what do you drop on your cutting floor? At the end of the day, you drop uh, on the cutting floor the thing that is not flashy. I've heard people referring to those known vulnerabilities and known bugs as known shippable. You know that you ship something, you and your QA have found it. You ship it and you hope for the best. And if you are your product or pro, or software is not used by millions, but tens of thousands, it's more likely than not it's not going to be found. And if you do, you just know it's there. You have uh, you can reprioritize uh, reactively. Uh, we both prefer the proactive approach, right? You and me. <laughs> we would love to have something that's as ironclad as humanly possible on day zero. But you said the thing about Azure Active Directory knowing uh, shipping a feature every single month or so. You might have seen that this uh, stream has slowed down quite significantly in the past couple of years. And also I remember a pause where, uh, I can't remember what the public phrasing was, but it was essentially, we're going to make things work better. <laughs> now that the feature's out there, the feature is out there, we'll actually make them more usable. Yeah, at the end of the day, people don't realize it that Azure AD is a backbone of Office 365. It turns out most customers don't realize that, that they, they have Office 365, they have Active Directory in the cloud. I hope that's better today. It was certainly the case early on. It's still majority. It's still north of 50%. I can tell you that for sure. Wow. And imagine that that there are 200, now I think 400 million paying Office 365 customers. That's probably mm-hmm. the last quarterly. Only 20% of them are paying for either EMS or uh, AD Premium. The value is in you being able to answer your email. No one cares about whether or not you answer that email that makes company money from their own laptop or you do MFA or not. That's how those wonderful ransomware things happen, right? (laughs) You just hope it never happens and then it does and it's a bad day for everyone involved. What we're talking around is that basic part of human nature that says, well, maybe it won't happen to me. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bias. At the end of the day, it's a human bias. You're absolutely right. What are some of your favorite examples of poor security design or poor security workflow in applications? Maybe applications we work with or maybe not even. The favorite one for me is Ashley Madison. It was the big one, right? For the longest time, I used Ashley Madison hack as the demo for have I been owned, right? 
And I was asking my clients and customers, hey, can I get your email, please? And during a demo, I was putting uh, their email address on the Have I Been Owned? And uh, when Ashley Madison popped out, I stopped using it. <laughs> you accidentally outed a... Accidentally outed one of the executives of Fortune 500 company. Uh... <laughs> oh, dear. If you read up on how the Ashley Madison thing happened is that after initially it was built with great password security principles in mind. So when you submitted your password, it was hashed, salted and kept in the database. And then on every single password request, the entire cryptographic operation chain was performed again and then compared to the thing that is in the database. So when you when the, when and if the database leaks, you have to go through a bunch of crypto and proper crypto, cryptographic operations, uh, to basically try to reverse it. You know, We know that overloading hashes, if they are properly salted, it's not that easy. Right. But when the Ashley Madison started picking up in popularity, that cryptographic operation of hashing and salting became prohibitive compute-wise. It basically became slow. It took forever to sign in. Sometimes it timed out and the error messages, and then you have your users dropping off, you have problems with user retention. So the business was obviously upset. So to the engineering department came the request, make logins faster. This was the only prerogative from the product team, from the executives, uh, make logins faster and make it quick because we're bleeding money. The workaround that they found out that on the successful signing attempt with all the hashing and everything, the plain text password was basically stored in another column in a user's table. So after someone has proven that their hash of, uh, and salted hash was, were correct, just to make stuff faster in the future, they basically put the password uh, in plain text in the database. And after that, we know what happened. Engineering-wise, they solved the thing up to the spec of their executives, of the product managers, because uh, at the end of the day, it was the shiny thing. Make money. Whatever the cost. The cost was basically uh, introducing a vulnerability because it's always a trade-off, right? We don't know if the trade-off between security and, and speed was made consciously, but it was made and it didn't pay off. So the vulnerability realized itself. That bet was lost at Ashley Madison. Wow. That's almost a, an almost Vulcan-like adhering to spec. Yep. That's what you gave me and nothing else. So Yes, absolutely, right? Uh, that's why it's the... Secure compute white paper that the big the Bill Gates one Microsoft one from the nineties right. Mm, mm-hmm. It's still an excellent piece of writing, but no one uses it because at the end of the day, the shiny spec, the thing that brings money in, is being valued more than the fundamentals, and it's across the board and systemic. Instead of when you want to do your job well, you want to be appreciated for it. And when you do the foundations and you're not appreciated for them, I wouldn't point a finger at a quote-unquote lazy dev because that's the most uh, harmful thing you can do probably in that situation. Right. We need to realize that we are also part of a problem uh, when we're telling uh, stories like, hey, just just be secure. Just have the fundamentals. Uh, it's kind of like telling someone, hey, be healthy. Just lose that weight. <laughs> Without giving guidance on how to do it. Guidance, support, opportunity, and stuff like that. It's not even a guidance. It's support and opportunity. That leads into an excellent subject. So how do you provide guidance developer that they can have good security without unduly compromising the desires from product management for features? So at the end of the day, it's 
those three Bs, right? Box build by. You're choosing one of three and it's balancing the act of uh, saying, you know what, let me save you some work. And instead of you having to take care of all of that security things with passwords, hashing, cryptographic, let's use something that already exists and let's just integrate it with it, right? That's where the things like single sign-on come in. Uh, just instead of trying to figure out how to do build an amazing security ironclad thing, just just onboard on, onto Auth0 and move on with your life. Use code that you know works and has been vetted. Yes, and it's maintained by someone else more often than not, right? Someone else is responsible for patching, updating, so you can build from pre-existing uh, bricks. Then what you get into is the the other topic du jour is third-party risk. You have to validate that company because now your code is beholden to their code. So it's uh, always a weighing risk, right? Some of yours and mine co my colleagues were kind of regretful going with Okta after the last few months. I'm willing to bet my left pinky that they are, if not mo uh, vast majority, then maybe even all customers benefited more from Okta along the years than the snafu they have had in the last few months. It's Again, it's hedging the risk. It's kind of like, which is more risky? Someone will uh, shoulder surf you or steal your laptop and liquid nitrogen freeze your TPM chip or they will pull you into a non-descriptive gray van, drive to the forest and take a crowbar to your kneecap, right? Which is more risky? You're hedging your risks. I've seen people trying to say, hey, let's turn off TPM because TPM can be circumvented uh, by liquid nitrogen and uh, three soldering wires. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just those new and shiny things get uh, distract us from the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are, are just most companies that are doing one thing very, very well are good about managing that risk for that one thing really, really well. And probably better than you ever will if you have uh, 17 things to care about uh, risk-wise and vulnerability-wise. Just uh, have a process for reviewing their risk matrix and uh, move on because at the end of the day, when we talk about breaches and vulnerabilities and hacks, it's not about outrunning the wolves that are chasing you. It's, out outrunning, it's about outrunning the slowest guy. Still, I don't know if you saw the newest and greatest stats on MFA for Office 365. No, what have you seen? It's I know it's going to be dismaying, but let's see. Let's... Around 30% of users in Office 365 are enabled for MFA. Less than 20% of admins are enabled for MFA. Well, that's still higher than it was. It was in it was single digit percentages. Yeah, but still. So imagine that that if I have I am eighty percent likely to password spray your admins. So if I go to Troy and find your admins' email addresses on their LinkedIn profiles and password spray them with typing those passwords in to portal office.com, I am eighty percent likely to just hit. If you're willing to live with that risk and you know, and you, because uh, pe what people go with, they go with the draconian password policies, right? Yep. Because they think, oh, password leaks, let's just rotate it. And mm. then phishing happens. <laughs> right. And then you enable MFA and then MFA token phishing happens. Then you enable passwordless FIDO, hello and enforce it then hardware vulnerabilities happen and it becomes an arms race. At this right, point, you are best off just doing straight up MFA once every blue moon and that's about it. 
Right, because what what this is about is this is about risk evaluation and the likelihood yep. of something like that happening. Yep. And so, which sort of goes full circle back to MFA via SMS. I mean, people yep. people see the the recommendation now. Hey, you know, it's, you probably shouldn't use SMS for MFA, but you know what? It's better than no MFA at all. I will Way tell better. you that even email based MFA is better than no MFA. Right. Even so. Even so. Yep. No excuse for not doing MFA because maybe the application only has email-based MFA. This is the place where sometimes the aforementioned developers and technical people and business people, when we come with that kind of a broad guidance, kind of say, okay, I see what you're saying, but I don't have opportunity to become healthy. Because as soon as someone takes that guidance, they go guns blazing ramp up to 11. MFA on every access, MFA to a laptop, MFA to a VPN, MFA to absolutely everything. And it's kind of bad. As soon as you introduce that amount of friction, people will literally revolt. You can go onto Google Play Store and literally find Microsoft MFA and Duo MFA push auto approvers because people are freaking sick of MFA fatigue. So the same group that uh, hacked Okta, uh, lapses, they got into Microsoft. They disclosed how did they get into Microsoft's uh, DevOps instance. They replayed a password, and then someone blindly approved a push request. Eventually. Most customers and most people, when they see 27 MFA pushes, they will eventually either uninstall the app, so disable pushes or uninstall the app or blindly approve it. They will never report it. So geolocation is imperfect because ge- geolocation, you, when you have, have 20 of those, you will not review all 20 locations. Mm. It, it puts so much uh, burden on a user. Number matching and na- is kind of good, but it's still more user friction. So if you do it too often, people will start revolting. You do it once, so the overarching guidance is one prompt per user, per device, per password change. Anything more, you're literally doubling your phishing risk because MFA can be phished. So that's an interesting, and this is a topic that I've wanted to bring up in this podcast for a while, and you're the perfect person because you know, having spent plenty of time talking to you and, and years as an identity consultant for Microsoft Identity, specifically Azure Active Directory and Azure MFA, conveying the concept that I can't call it a legacy concept because it's still out there in many, many products of MF, MFA being somebody gets banged over the head with an MFA challenge every time, which is not the way it works in Azure AD and frankly makes people a little uneasy. It makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so c- can you maybe better than I am outlay what we're talking about here? Yeah. I think the good place to start with is NIST authentication assurance levels uh, guidance. Because at the end of the day, the prompt, the user interaction has one of two purposes. User can either prove their presence or prove they intend to do something. So when you perform a transfer or wire transfer in your bank, your bank will out of bound prompt you for MFA to prove Mm -hmm. that you have intended to do this thing. So also, if you are working with medical professionals, EPCS, Electronic per, uh, Controlled Substances Prescription System, EPICS, uh, has this thing. If you want to prescribe someone uh, opiates, 
right? You have to MFA out of bound to prove that you intended to do it. For every transaction. Basically, it becomes a digital signature of kind. Okay. Instead of signing your name or typing your name in a thing, you have to perform the MFA. That's what EPCS does. For most productivity use case scenarios, for irregular office workers, there isn't a reason for them to prove their intent. I'm always struggling to find one. There is a good reason to for admins to prove their intent, that they have to elevate, they have to get into a sensitive system because you don't want them to accidentally get into a place when they can spread their digital cooties. For regular users, for, in, for office workers, people that live on their laptop most of the time, on their phone most of the time, uh, MFA has mostly proof of presence function. They are proving they are in front of a device. As soon as they prove they are in front of a device, user agent, browser, whatever, they have proven it already. So basically that device should be by extension, a little bit more trustworthy. If you're allowing untrustworthy devices, that's probably on you because someone can steal their cookies and that's on you, right? So what you're saying is once they've proven a second factor and through biometrics and device information, they're showing that they're still on the same device at the same IP address. Nothing else has changed. Why challenge them again? Yeah, exactly. Just cache that information until it's, it gets reactively revoked. And you reactively revoke basically user sessions, which by extension revokes all of their tokens. So it will introduce the prompts. But most of the time, the user friction should probably be there only and only if something goes horribly wrong, right? Good security, it's invisible to users, but unsurmountable to bad, to bad actors. That's why people, when they look at Azure specifically identity protection or Octa's adaptive auth, that if they don't see that prompt, they kind of feel uneasy because they just assume something happened with carte blanche, with tabula rasa, with uh, nothing asserting that this session, this user is trustworthy enough. Those tokens, those artifacts that are dropped onto your device, your browser cache, are fairly reliable and a certain bunch of information that uh, you can basically suppress prompts and introducing more and more of them just for the sake I want to show people I deploy that wonderful MFA system, it's probably not a great idea. I'm talking both for primary about uh, primary refresh tokens. I'm talking about keep me signed in cookies. I'm talking about tokens that live inside of your office apps on your mobile phone. At the end of the day, it's just a refresh token, period. Uh, so that refresh token is used for reauthorizing your access every hour. Right now, it's, I think, every 90 minutes. If it happens that you change your passwords, anything funky happens, that refresh token will get rejected and user will be prompted. To my colleagues that wonder if MFA is working in, in, in my company, the answer is yes, you just haven't changed your parameters around enough to warrant getting re-challenged. And the funny thing is, if you are really, really not sure, you can literally go to audit logs and see non-interactive sign-ins and see whether or not there was an MFA claim in the token. That auditing is already there. Right. And I do do that. You can look and you can see, you can see the factor satisfied or previously satisfied. Now, as an administrator, 
I see the MFA challenges all the time, you know, in and out, but I'm, I'm happy to see them. <laughs> it, it's all about your risk, right? How yeah. much damage can someone do even if that token leaks, right? PRTs are inherently very hard to replay, to do token replay. Azure started detecting those token replays about three months ago. Cookies are a little bit easier. And things like Nginx and Modlishka, uh, man-in-the-middle proxies to fish your MFA, inherently cannot do stuff like Fido, cannot do stuff like Hello, cannot do device authentication. So one of the places where I've seen people really go down on that, that session lifetime is uh, and to prompting people out of the wazoo, the proverbially, was... Uh, "Quote unquote," the grandma PC scenario. Mm, yes. So you go on vacation and you're in your uh, grandma's house, and she has a virus-infested Windows XP, but you still have to want to check your email because something came up, and you are have good work-life balance, and you didn't bring your work device with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, to account for those, you can pivot on how often, how quickly do you want to terminate your sessions on devices that you that you deem that are definitely untrustworthy. So if you don't manage your devices with an MDM or with GPOs, make those sessions shorter because there is a data loss prevention uh, uh, risk in there. There is a data loss risk in there because that basically session controls become data loss prevention mechanism. And it's an accidental data loss, right? Because you leave your PC unlocked on that grandma's PC and uh, some kind of worm just uh, sucks out your data and right. uploads it to a Google Drive. It makes sense. In, there are scenarios where it makes sense, but the broad strokes every day in the beginning of my day, I have to MFA. It's bad. We asked a couple of big four customers, uh, those big consulting firms, how often do those consultants have to uh, re-authenticate and get reprompted? It's uh, on average, it's about an hour a day putting in passwords into various IT systems. So very often, it's not even the same password. Very often, it's like three different MFA solutions. So it's an hour a day of a consultant that your clients are paying for their time anywhere between 300 and 700 bucks an hour a day. So it's about 25 hours a month. Multiply by dollars, and that's when you see your value. Or lack thereof. Personally, I know it tries my patience, and and you know I'm a professional in this area. Just to go through a, a a workflow where I fire up an app like my corporate Outlook on my iPad, and then I go down the rabbit hole of getting a password challenge that I have to use LastPass to retrieve the password because I made a gnarly password, and then I have to provide a password for LastPass, and then I have to respond to a LastPass MFA challenge then retrieve the password for Outlook, then answer an MFA challenge for Outlook. <laughs> so no wonder. And then I forget what the hell I went to Outlook for. Yeah, I can tell you you're cheap and you didn't pay for the LastPass premium to get the Touch ID and find and WebAuthn integration. <laughs> uh, sometimes they expire and they make me re-go. But yeah, I, I, I got it. So this is always enlightening, Daniel, and, and enjoy the conversation. And I always enjoy your insight into... You know, as I said before, sort of under the covers, how Azure AD pays attention to you and how I remember Alex Simons once saying, and I'm sure it's up from there once he said, you know, your user ID and password are only one of about 110 different attributes that Azure AD looks at yep. uh, when it does your authentication. So 
Yeah, it's just the automatic blocking of uh, password sprays. It's kind of uh, it's kind of a magical piece of technology. And uh, probably on the next identity verse, there was going to be another session from that group. At the end of the day, it's just things that are seem counterintuitive to us security professionals about security are literally the best practice. Right, the classic example of passport policies. We know that passport policies are literally bad. Those complexity rules, we already know that. Now it's just convincing and untangling 20 years of conditioning. It's going to become literally the same with uh, prompting an MFA and authenticator assurance levels, but we'll get there. And as soon as we decide that uh, decent user experience is kind of good and we just start empathizing both with users and our devs that have to build those systems, it's more about empathy than anything else. That's true. If you're so secure that no one wants to use it or they work around it, then you've defeated your own purpose. Most secure system is the one that you dig a mile deep hole and then pour a concrete over. <laughs> right. It's so secure that no one can use it. It's friction. The friction is uh, can have a true positive rate or a false positive rate on the ROC curve. Every time you introduce friction to a legitimate user, it's a false positive. My colleague, Gil Kirkpatrick, once told me, uh, you know, uh, nobody cares about identity except for identity people. It's just a speed bump on the way of getting to what they really want to do. And so, of course, the better the speed bump experience, the better they like it. I can see that. It, uh, in good uh, service maps and service catalogs, your Active Directory is not a service. It's a service enabler. That's right. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate this. This is, is always a, a great conversation. I really do look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.